Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today, we're going to talk about the war in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. How grave a threat do M23 rebels, who are by all accounts backed by Rwanda, pose to Congolese President Felix Tshisekedi? As the fighting draws closer, residents from Goma's surrounding villages have left, heading for displacement camps in the city or to South Kivu. On the same day, M23 rebels are believed to have shot at a UN helicopter in the Masisi region. In recent weeks, the armed group has been fighting government forces there as it tries to seize the city of Sake, 24 kilometers away. It's the last city before Goma. Large areas of North Kivu are now under its control. In the run-up to elections in December, President Felix Tshisekedi promised he would rid the country of M23. Just over a decade ago, in 2013, Southern African troops appear to have defeated the M23, pushing most of its fighters and leaders into neighbouring Rwanda and Uganda. But in 2021, the M23 rebounded. The group again seized much of North Kivu province, including valuable mineral mines and roads leading into provincial capital Goma. Just in the past few weeks, the M23 has joined a new opposition coalition, the Congo River Alliance, raising fears in Kinshasa that rebels traditionally focused in eastern DRC could upend national politics. UN reports have long documented Rwanda's support for the M23. Rwandan President Paul Kagame's close ties to Western capitals have largely meant criticism of Rwanda's role in the eastern DRC has been muted. But last week, as the M23 used heavier weapons seemingly supplied by Rwanda, the US and France issued sharply worded statements about Rwanda's role, prompting in turn angry denials from Kigali. This is US diplomat Robert Wood at the UN. Rwanda must end its support to M23. It must also withdraw Rwandan forces from Congolese territory and immediately remove any and all of its surface-to-air missile systems. So could the M23 again seize Goma? What to make of the Congo River Alliance? And as troops from more African countries again pile into the eastern DRC, what danger of a wider war? To talk about all this, I'm very happy to welcome back onto the show Richard Moncrief, who runs Crisis Group's work on the Democratic Republic of Congo. Richard, welcome back on. Thanks for having me back on. So let's start with these communiques last week from the US and France. Why this change of tone? Well, I think, you know, international actors have been concerned about what's happening in North Kivu ever since the uh, fighting broke out about uh, just over two years ago. But I think what the uh, recent flurry of communiques, the kind of war of words, if you like, that we've seen over the last two weeks or so, what it tells us is that there's a new and heightened concern at the moment. And I think this comes from two main reasons. Firstly, the renewed fighting, which I'm sure we'll talk about around Goma, the capital of North Kivu province, is causing a real humanitarian catastrophe with hundreds of thousands of people displaced, many of them moving towards Goma, which is becoming quite unmanageable. Then I think the second element is the increased use of drones and surface-to-air missiles. And I think that international actors, Western, US and France, who've made recent statements, are very concerned that this is a new escalation and could get out of control and could even have some unfortunate, unintended consequences. So worried about the human toll, the deepening humanitarian crisis, worried about surface-to-air missiles hitting something they shouldn't. Are they also worried about the M23 marching on Goma, taking Goma, which it has done briefly in the past, just over a decade ago? Well, I think that is a concern. I think that there is a a feeling that because Kinshasa is refusing to negotiate with the M23, that the M23 is consistently upping the ante. And I think that this option of marching on Goma to really force the hand of Kinshasa It remains in the calculation of the M23, let's say, but I don't think it's the most likely scenario. I think it's more likely that the M23 simply wished to put pressure on Goma, caused a degree of chaos in the city, again, to put pressure on Kinshasa. And they have various other strategic aims on the ground, I'd say. And the fighting itself, what does it mostly look like at the moment? Well, it's essentially a kind of trench warfare And the main fighting is concentrated around the town of Sake. Sake is a a kind of gateway town 
a very important strategic location. It's between 20 and 30 kilometers to the west of Goma. It's located on the last main trunk road leading in and out of Goma. So it's vital for supplies in and out of that city and for population movements. The last as in all the others are controlled by the M23? There's around about, depending how you describe a road, there's around about three main tarmac roads that lead out of Goma and obviously supply Goma with, uh, you know, foodstuffs and the like. Two leading to the north are controlled, mainly controlled now by the M23. So this is the last of the three. That's correct. Goma is uh, backs onto Lake Kivu and then, in fact, onto Rwanda to its south and its east. So these supply lines are its only roads into the heartland of DR Congo. Sake is also important because it's a gateway town into South Kivu, which it looks like the M23 want to try to get a, a toehold in South Kivu for various reasons. Now, the fighting is occurring mainly by exchange of mortar fire and other heavy artillery and some more direct, not quite hand to hand, but, you know, closer fighting happening mainly in the hills around Sake. The M23 have pretty good control of these hills, which overlook Sake and overlook the main road. And the population has suffered enormously. Not only have they fled the fighting, but rockets, mortar rockets, it seems very likely, have landed in a school, in a displacement camp near Goma, and have landed several times on Sake with civilian casualties. Civilians have died in those rocket attacks. So Eastern DRC has long suffered an enormous amount of displacement. I think overall something like 6 million Congolese are displaced across the whole country. But this escalation, Richard, do we know how many people it's forced to move? Well, the figures differ slightly. But if we look at the last, let's say the last month where the fighting has intensified in the Seke area and intensified in the hills overlooking Goma, we're looking at several hundred thousand people displaced in that period many of whom, if not very likely the majority of whom, were already displaced from further into North Kivu. So they're being re-displaced and they're mainly moving in towards uh, Goma, but some are moving uh, into the towns of South Kivu. And it's right that they're not necessarily fleeing the M23, although I'm sure some are, but they're actually fleeing the fighting itself, the violence and the risk of getting caught up in the violence and particularly the shelling by both sides. Yes, that's right. I mean, we have to remember that the M23 controls about half of North Kivu province. And of course, people live under M23 controlled areas. They continue to tend their fields and go about their daily life. So most of the displacement is caused by the shifting front line and by the fact that the M23 and the uh, National Congo Army and, and their allies tend to fight along main road axes and also fight in urban areas. So that's really what's pushing people onto the road. So we'll come in a bit to Rwanda, regional politics, Rwanda's relationship with the M23. But could we start with the M23 itself? So a lot of the armed groups in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo are fairly small, often local community-based militias with machine guns and machetes. But the M23 is not that, right? It's well-armed. You talked about some of the artillery it has. It's quite a well-drilled force. Some of its leaders served in the Congolese army. And as you say, it controls big tracts of North Kivu. It's a big insurgent force. Yes, that's right. I mean, you've put it pretty well there. Many of the armed groups, as you say, present in Eastern DRC, well over 100 Nearly all of them are what you might call kind of community-based groups. So they they emerge from a locality. They purport to defend the interests of often quite small ethnic groups. They often become predatory later, but nevertheless, they come from a certain area. Now, the M23 are quite different. They draw on the Tutsi community, principally the Congolese Tutsi community, which is a diaspora community spread across a large area um, in DRC and also in refugee camps in the region. And as you say, they are a much more organised group. They look much more like a national army, in fact. And this looks like a war between two armies. It's heavy on the use of artillery and so forth. And the other important point which you noted is that the M23 control territory. They put in place administrators. They raise customs tax. They raise 
daily tax on economic activity and you know they have a much greater sense of running an area and organizing their rule over an area than any of the other armed groups i mean is it possible to give a sense of how is the relationship between the m23 and people in areas they control that aren't tutsi well i think people in that area suffer from predatory behavior whether it's by armed groups of all different kinds or by the security forces as well so unfortunately they're quite used to illegal taxes extortion rackets and so forth the m23 uh, raise money from the population people pay their tax because they have to traders pay their tax as they move goods from one point to another and so forth worth noting as well that uh, there's a lot of uh, mineral resources in north kivu um, particularly as one of the world's biggest coltan mines in uh, masisi territory and uh, the M23 controls most of the area around that mine. So there's a fair amount at stake for them in controlling this territory. And armed groups in the eastern DRC are well known for their predation, their violence against civilians. Is the M23 more disciplined in terms of its tactics on the battlefield and its rule, its control of territory? Well, when it's fighting, civilians are going to suffer because the fighting is happening in or very close to urban areas. So the rockets that landed very close to Goma recently, it's generally thought that they weren't aiming at schools or refugee displacement camps, but nevertheless, they landed in them and have killed individuals. Uh, So that's a kind of fallout from the fighting. In terms of their relationship with local populations, the M23 is quite well organised and certainly aims to rule the areas that it controls in a peaceful but hard-handed way, if that makes sense. But in order to control these areas, you know, it it does exercise a degree of violence. It has been responsible for massacres over the two years where it's been in control of uh, large areas of North Kivu. And of course, it's in competition with other armed groups. And that competition is necessarily violent And that involves repercussions on civilians, sometimes retribution attacks on civilians. All armed groups are responsible for that. So while the M23 claim to be different, the reality is that they are in a violent competition for territory and resources with other armed groups and civilians pay the price for that. And the M23 is fighting the army around Sake, this main front line that you talked about just west of Goma. But although the Congolese government state has quite a bit of money now, mostly from mining, President Chisikedi, his government is actually able to purchase weapons, Chinese drones, I think, Russian planes. But the Congolese army itself is and has long been extremely weak and in many places relies on other armed groups, local militias that it arms and mobilizes in the east to fight the M23. Yes, that's right. So a lot of the um, smaller armed groups in North Kivu and indeed in uh, other provinces of eastern Congo, one of the reasons uh, that they use to mobilize people and to uh, stay, uh, remain as an armed group is to defend their local area against what they see as foreign uh, aggression. And so when the M23 took ground, in 2022-23, a number of these arms groups reactivated and started fighting the M23. Now, when Kinshasa and the uh, Congolese authorities realised that the M23 was serious, was armed, was well organised, they started to look for support because the Congolese army is very weak, very disorganised indeed. And in the course of 2023, they held various meetings in North Kivu with the leaders of these armed groups where they offered them political support, uh, resources and a kind of broader sense of legitimacy in return for sending their fighters onto the front line to fight the M23. And this has given rise to a broad coalition of armed groups, uh, very frequently called the Wazalendo in the Congo, which is a Swahili word meaning patriots, Um, who are indeed fighting the M23. And indeed, the evidence I've seen is that they are more involved in frontline fighting than the actual Congolese army. 
So, I mean, that's a fairly worrying situation because these armed groups are fairly predatory. A lot of them have a very poor human rights record. And there's some very serious questions about their longer term demobilization, given that Kinshasa at the moment is encouraging them to mobilize and arm and fight. I want to move in a moment to the M23's relations with some other Congolese opposition figures, opposition groups. But Richard, last time you came on, we talked much more about the M23's origins and its history. So if people want more background, do check out that previous episode. But still, maybe, Richard, do you want to just give, just so people are aware, a quick background on where the M23 came from? Yeah, so the M23, is, as is the case with most armed groups in this region, comes from the Civil War and indeed the regional war of the late 1990s and the early 2000s, when ethnic communities tended to form militia, uh, often quite uh, powerful and large militia, which participated in the war. When the war drew to an end in the early 2000s, one of the elements of the peace deal or the peace deals which took place then was to draw some of these armed groups into the army. And the Tutsi groups which centred around the CNDP, many of them did go into the army. So the current military head of the M23, Sultana Makenge, he was a colonel in the uh, Congolese National Army for a certain period. Now that gives them military experience, it gives them a whole network of support across Eastern DRC, and they draw on that, that background, that past. But then they fell out with the authorities in Kinshasa. One of the reasons was the authorities wanted to uh, disperse them and deploy them across the country and break up the structures that they had in North Kivu, which were very advantageous to them. And they then left the army and reformed a, a rebellion, renamed that rebellion the M23. Uh, but there is a certainly a degree of continuity, and many of the senior members of the M23 were in the CNDP, and indeed go right back to the Civil War, when some of them fought uh, on the side of the Rwandan army in the late 1990s. And Richard, I mean, traditionally, the M23 has been a group sort of rooted in the Kivus, drawing from and claiming to protect the interests of Congolese Tutsis, very much been a feature of the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, of North Kivu in particular. Now, just recently, it has reportedly become part of this new alliance of armed groups or opposition groups called the Congo River Alliance. It was a, an alliance that seems to have formed in the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. And we'll talk in a moment about the relationship between uh, Congolese President Felix Tshisekedi and the Kenyan government and, and how that's evolved. But what is the M23 becoming part of this alliance, which isn't just a, something related to the Eastern DRC? I mean, it's potentially something wider. What's the significance of that? Well, I think this is something that concerns international actors and in particular concerns the government in Kinshasa, is this idea that the M23 is becoming part of a kind of wider armed opposition against the Congolese government. Now, there's a few bits of evidence that point that way. You mentioned the uh, Congo River Alliance, AFC, which was created, uh, as you say, in Nairobi and purports to be a wide alliance of armed groups with a very clear agenda of uh, overthrowing the government in Kinshasa. But it seems more like a kind of political umbrella principally to the M23. The aspect of this, which I think is worrying Kinshasa the most, is that the uh, AFC has clear links in the Katanga region, the region of origin of Chiskedi's predecessor, Joseph Kabila. And various allies of Joseph Kabila have made noises and uh, made declarations against Kinshasa. There's a degree of resentment amongst the Katangan elite who may be more or less linked to Kabila against Chiskedi. And the head of the Congo River Alliance was the former head of the Electoral Commission under Joseph Kabila. This is Kone Nanga. That's right, Nanga, yeah. We also know from our conversations with people on the ground in the Katanga region that some young men from Katanga are going to North Kivu to join the fight on the side of the M23. We've had this evidence coming through for a while now, 
And I think it uh, looks fairly likely that this is happening. So there are some bits of evidence to say that the M23 is becoming part of a kind of wider and very worrying alliance against Kinshasa, against Chisgedi. However, I think we need to put this in context to a certain degree. The M23 remains an insurgency that's based very much in North Kivu. It's still very much anchored in the Congolese Tutsi community with the backing of Rwanda. And and that's been true since the beginning, and that remains true. If we do see signs of an expansion and a widening of this anti-Kinshasa front, they are very embryonic at the moment, let's say. We only just see the beginnings of them. There are no insurgencies of any great consequence in the Katanga region, for example, and the M23's actions at the moment are very much limited to North Kivu, with a possible um, extension recently into some very small parts of South Kivu. So you can see that Kinshasa is very worried about the M23 joining up with other anti-Kinshasa elements. But at the moment, the M23 remains very much a North Kivu-focused outfit. And Richard, just before we move to the sort of evolving regional politics around the Eastern DRC, people probably remember that... um, Joseph Kabila, the uh, predecessor, as you say, of President Chisikedi, backed Chisikedi in essence when Chisikedi first won the presidency. Since then, their relations between them have become strained as uh, Chisikedi has sort of consolidated his power, pushed out allies of Kabila. But how are relations between Chisikedi and Kabila now? Well, I think they remain very frosty. We saw that Kabila and his political party were the only major significant political organization in DR Congo to completely boycott all the national elections of last year, not just the presidential elections, but the parliamentary elections as well. And they've strongly criticized the electoral process. So just at that level, at the kind of political level, we can see that relationships are poor. Then we have other indications where, so for example, late last year, uh, certain John Numbi, who was the head of the police under uh, Joseph Kabila and is currently living in exile in Zimbabwe, made a statement posted on YouTube, essentially calling for the overthrow of Chiskedi. Now, since then, Chiskedi has won what in his eyes is a very comfortable victory in the elections. So he's a newly inaugurated president. None of the observers or international actors seriously contest that he was elected. So he feels fairly comfortable. But there's a sense in which the east of the country has not kind of joined in that celebration of Chiskedi's victory and a danger that the west, where Chiskedi is well supported, the broad west, including Kinshasa, but also other provinces, is somewhat detached from the realities in the east where they're suffering from these insurgencies and their support uh, for Chiskedi was much uh, less. And although Chisikedi has moved to consolidate his control over Congolese institutions and ease, to some degree, the grip of Kabila and his allies, he hasn't gone after Kabila's assets, his financial interests. There's no sign of that happening. Well, no. Kabila and his family remain very wealthy. They have an awful lot of interests across the country. There have been some shifts within the army and security forces where Chiskedi has managed to uh, push out some of Kabila's allies and put his own people in place. Well, he's the president of the country. It would be very surprising if he was to do otherwise. I think it's worth pointing out that it's not always about Kabila. There is quite a big uh, fight going on for control of the benefits of the mining business in the former Katanga province. And by this, I mean things like uh, the business of um, logistics around mining sites or owning mining licenses and reselling them, uh, which are both very lucrative businesses at the moment. And there is a degree of tension between the Katangan elites who've always had their a good grip on this and people 
close to Chiskedi or in his political party or from his native region of the Kasais who are moving into this area. And there's a number of signs that this is creating quite a lot of friction in the Katanga region. But that doesn't necessarily relate to Kabila. And we don't see very clear signs uh, that this is related to the violence in North Kivu. It's just an important element of national tensions. So let's move then to the regional politics. And Richard, when you last came on the show, we talked about how Chisikedi, on coming to power, had pivoted the Democratic Republic of Congo's foreign relations from Southern Africa to East Africa. He'd joined the East Africa community. He'd forged close relations with Nairobi. And Kenyans deployed forces, part of an East African force, into North Kivu, around Goma, what, in late 2022? Kinshasa, many Congolese hoped that they would take the fight to the M23. I think the Kenyans understandably saw the force more as keeping the arteries, the main supply routes to Goma open, containing the M23, forcing them into negotiations. And their restraint was a, you know, source of frustration to Chisikedi, to many Congolese. And what over the course of the latter part of 2023, Chisikedi appears to have pivoted back to southern africa kenyan troops have left instead now southern african development communities sadic troops have deployed in turn to fight the m23 so what's happened why the pivot back to southern africa yeah i mean it's very striking the kind of rapidity of change you know how fast these alliances change which itself has a lot of consequences because it means that if a regional peace enforcement operation deploys into North Kivu, uh, there's a whole uncertainty about how long it's going to be there, which makes planning, financing and so forth very difficult. Just as an anecdote, last September, I was talking to two quite well-placed individuals about the future of the East African force, principally the Kenyans in North Kivu. Uh, One person was saying to me, well, they'll probably replace the UN force in due course, the UN force, which is pulling out this year, 2024. And then the other individual, equally well-placed, said, no, I think they'll probably be out of the country by Christmas, which I think shows very clearly the uncertainty of the situation. Um, In the end, the second person was right. And indeed, the East African force did pull out in mid-December very rapidly. You covered some of the reasons why the East Africans pulled out. Fundamentally, Kinshasa does not want to enter into negotiations on the basis of the current status quo on the ground. And they've said this consistently. They said, we will not negotiate with the M23 as long as they hold this territory in North Kivu. So they're looking for allies to push them back. Uh, and then uh, they may uh, eventually uh, you know, enter into talks with the M23. Indeed, Kinshasa has talked to the M23 in the past, so we, we can't exclude that. But they don't want to in the current situation. So they look to the Kenyans to provide that kind of uh, force to push the M23 back. The Kenyans came in with a different set of expectations. I think they realised this was very difficult terrain to take on offensive operations. So they saw their position as more uh, creating uh, the conditions for a ceasefire. I think that was the Kenyan aim. And Kinshasa didn't like this. And this became the subject of quite a dispute in the course of 2023. And then in the end, Chisgedi asked them to leave, said he wouldn't renew the mandate of the East African force. uh, And they left in December. From around mid-2023, Chisgedi consulted his Southern African counterparts, in particular uh, in South Africa, and came up with the agreement that the Southern Africans would send a force in effectively to replace the East African force, but the idea was this time with a really offensive mandate. And I think that on the Congolese side, this expectation draws to a large degree from the experience of 2012 and 2013, when a rapid reaction force embedded within the UN, but composed of South African, Tanzanian and Malawian troops, commonly known as the FIB, That's the Force Intervention Brigade, which stepped in when the M23 briefly captured Goma back in 2012, which we talked about earlier. Yeah, the Force Intervention Brigade. Uh, And they did take the fight to the M23. And combined with a lot of diplomatic pressure on Rwanda, that led to the M23 pulling back and eventually pulling back to refugee camps in Rwanda and Uganda. 
I think that there is the let's say that the Congolese expectation at the current moment is coloured by that. But there's two really key differences between the current situation and that pertaining in 2012, 2013. Firstly, this force is not embedded within the UN. And as a consequence, there's some really serious questions around its uh, financing, questions coming from within South Africa in particular. And then the second point is that the diplomatic pressure on Rwanda doesn't look quite like it looks in 2012. And we'll come to that diplomatic pressure in a moment. But um, relations between Kinshasa and Nairobi, so Kenyan President Russo's government, as we talked about a few weeks ago, has pursued this more active foreign policy. Kenya also plans to deploy police to lead a force in Haiti. But its efforts against the M23, at least from the perspective of many Congolese, have sort of fallen flat. So how are relations between Chisikiri and Kinshasa? And does the Congolese president blame the Kenyans for the Congo River Alliance, which, you know, as we talked about, was an agreement that was struck in Nairobi? Well, I think that the Congolese basically don't see the Kenyans as completely innocent in the creation of the Congo River Alliance. Now, on the Kenyan side, they came out of DRC quite resentful at what had happened. They felt they were being uh, hoisted with the blame for an unmanageable situation. I know that a number of senior officers were very unhappy with the collaboration with the Congolese army, which they described as very difficult. So there was certainly the creation of the Congo River Alliance came as a kind of culmination of tension. Now, I can't say directly whether the Kenyans were involved. It is true that people pass through Nairobi very frequently and have meetings, but at the same time, Kenya has its own intelligence service and you would have thought they would have been aware of what was happening. But I don't have direct information in that respect. What's happened since uh, indicates perhaps a willingness on both sides to start to patch things up. Firstly, the leader of the Congo River Alliance, Kony Nanga, has left Kenya and is now based in the M23 controlled area in North Kivu. And then secondly, William Ruto did go to Chiskedi's inauguration ceremony at the end of January. They're two big countries in the East African community. There's a lot of trade and investment at stake. So I think there is a willingness to patch the relationship up in the long run. And Richard, the SADC force provided the funding issues you mentioned can be worked through. So as you say, similar composition to the force that deployed just over a decade ago, South Africans, Malawians, Tanzanians, but also Burundi, which is not part of SADC, but already has troops in the Eastern DRC, seems also likely to play some role. So looking at it from the perspective of Rwanda, generally its relations with SADC and South Africa are less good than its relations with Kenya. So there's that, but also its relations with Burundi, which it neighbours, have gotten particularly strained recently, which also means it might look at what's happening in this sort of new configuration of forces in the East with even more disquiet. Yeah, so Burundi is a bit of the kind of uh, joker card in all this, if you like. I I think we need to start by saying that uh, the uh, authorities in Gitega, the capital of Burundi, have really good relations with their Congolese counterparts at the moment. Uh, President Ndushimai just visited Kinshasa and met with Chiskedi, that was just a few days ago, and we see all the signs that this is a very close relationship. Now, the Burundian troops have been present in South Kivu, fighting their own insurgents. That's been true for a few years, but more relevant is that Burundian troops deployed alongside the East African force, Burundi is a member of the East African community, and also on a bilateral basis, just an agreement with Kinshasa, in North Kivu, and started fighting the M23. Now, that has led to, or at least been a factor, in a significant deterioration in Burundi's relations with Rwanda over the last couple of months, including Burundi's decision to completely close the border with its northern neighbour, with Rwanda, and indeed to amass a significant number of troops and ruling party militia on the border with Rwanda. So we see really significant tensions building up. 
I think the worrying aspect of this is that the fighting in North Kivu is kind of taking on this regional dimension where countries are pulled into one camp or another, uh, kind of polarisation. Burundi is clearly being pulled into the orbit of Kinshasa, if you like, and that's damaging its relationships with Rwanda, which is really a significant worry given that Rwanda and Burundi share a long border Uh, share a very tumultuous history together as well. And then more widely, there's the concern that the East African community, let's say, pivots towards the Kigali position, while the Southern African leaders pivot more towards the Kinshasa position, which is very worrying because that would then undermine regional diplomatic efforts, which are being led principally by Angola, which is one of the few countries that's really tried to maintain a more neutral position and maintain channels uh, with all sides. And Uganda, another of the DRC's neighbours to the north of Rwanda, which also has troops in the eastern DRC, mostly fighting, I think, in North Kivu and then in Ituria, province just to the north, its own rebels, so a Ugandan rebel group, the ADF, which is also now part of the Islamic State. I mean, how has Uganda positioned itself? So some in the Congo, including some parliamentarians who voiced this concern, are worried that Uganda may be giving some support to the M23, remembering that they have done so in the past and that uh, a number of the M23 leaders have spent the last 10 years based in Uganda. Now, if that support's there, it's uh, clearly of a much lower order than any support coming from Rwanda. Uh, But it is a concern amongst some Congolese. At the same time, the Congolese leadership in Kinshasa is happy to collaborate with the Ugandans in fighting the ADF. So the Ugandans are kind of playing something of a balancing act. Their relations with Rwanda are complicated. I think there's some in the leadership in Kampala who are quite close to the Rwandan leadership and others who have a much more competitive understanding of their position in the Great Lakes. So then this brings us, of course, to Rwanda itself. And, you know, as we heard up top, increasing frustration from Western capitals, although they remain close to President Kagame, but increasing frustration at the support that Rwanda is giving to the M23. How do we best understand the relationship between the M23 and Rwanda and what it's hoping to get from backing the group? Well, we've said that the M23 is backed by Rwanda, but it also has its own agenda. It's formed principally of Congolese Tutsis, who very likely seek an amnesty for past war crimes and probably also seek to rejoin the Congolese army on their own terms. So they have their own agenda. But it is very clear, and the evidence has just accumulated significantly over the last two years, that the Rwanda is backing the M23 What that means is that they supply them with weapons, they supply them with recruits, and they've also deployed the Rwandan army into North Kivu to back them up. Richard, do we have a sense of the numbers of Rwandan forces that have deployed? I understand they also give them intelligence and sort of really make the M23's operations more effective. But do we have a sense of the numbers of Rwandan troops that have deployed in? So the UN sources talk of thousands of Rwandan troops having crossed the border over the last six months. So that's a very significant deployment. That are now, in essence, fighting together with the M23. Yes, that's correct, and very likely securing supply lines as well. And this comes from different sources, but certainly within the UN, they're convinced that there are a large number of RPF, that's the Rwandan Army troops, uh, in North Kivu. Yeah. And Rwanda's support for the M23 is obviously not at all new, but what does Kigali hope to get from that support now and why the increase over the past couple of years? Well, the first thing, as I was saying, the first thing I think to note about Rwanda's support for the M23 is they don't admit to offering any support to the M23, so they won't give publicly give their reasons. They do, however, say that the Congolese relationship with the FDLR, which is an armed group which derives from the people who committed the genocide against the Rwandan Tutsis in 1994 and is present in North Kivu, is essentially a, a security priority for the Rwandan government. And it's true that the FDLR are 
dedicated to overthrowing the government in Kigali. So they are a security threat. And it is also true that the Congolese army collaborates with them. But I think we need to put it in a bit of perspective. The FDLR is not a very significant group. It certainly doesn't have the capacity to do any serious damage to Rwanda. But I think that Rwanda is very risk averse. They want control of an area beyond their borders. I think that Rwanda is not prepared to allow a situation where they don't have a degree of control in North Kivu, which they consider to be their backyard. There's an awful lot of resources and minerals going through Rwanda, uh, so they're making money out of this. I wouldn't necessarily say that's the primary factor. I think the primary factor remains this desire to retain a security footprint in North Kivu, but it also helps if uh, money is flowing in from North Kivu as well. So I'd say that over the last two and a half years, Rwandan's support for the M23 has really been a constant. So despite pressure, despite Western countries publicly and no doubt African countries in private um, trying to uh, call out the Rwandan support for the M23, trying to persuade the Rwandans to pull that support back, we haven't seen any sign of that working. And we do. We have to conclude that the leadership in Kigali is quite determined that it won't let the M23 fail, that it's going to back it up. And it seems to be very unwilling to back down on that. And if we think of efforts to calm the violence in North Kivu, deal with the M23, you've really got the challenge not only of the group itself, but also of Rwanda's support. And as is often the case with local wars where the parties have outside sponsors, the interests of the M23 may overlap with those of Rwanda, but they may not be exactly the same. And as you say, the M23 has its own set of goals, some better articulated than others, mostly local, and Rwanda has its own interests in the Eastern DRC. Is that right? And do you want to say something about how those two challenges relate to one another and what political tracks that address them both, the M23 and Rwanda, what those might look like? There's two different things going on. And they do have to be managed differently. The M23 is a big armed insurgency. And one day, the authorities in Kinshasa will have to consider what to do with it. At the moment, the authorities in Kinshasa are principally saying, well, it's just a Rwandan proxy, so we're not going to talk to it. We just need to get the Rwandans to pull out their support. Well, that's just not, frankly, a sustainable peace option. Uh, So eventually you're going to have to take these guys seriously. Uh, It doesn't mean that Kinshasa has to cave into all their uh, demands, uh, but I think for the sake of peace, there's going to have to be some talking at some point. And that will be talking about the M23's future, the future of its leaders, their entry into politics and the army, for example. Yeah, absolutely. I suspect that any eventual discussion, and we are a long way from that, but any eventual discussion between the M23 and Kinshasa is going to have to resolve the issue of what will happen to their leadership. Immunity, exile, will they come back to Congo? Uh, What kind of positions might they have? Will they be pursued by military justice? And so forth. And no doubt there'll be some give and take on that. The other very thorny issue is this question of reintegrating them into the army. Uh, The M23 would probably wish to go back into the army if they could determine where they were deployed and at what ranks. Kinshasa at the moment is determined to not let that happen. I think there's a wide understanding in Kinshasa and also among its international partners that folding armed groups into the national army, while it may have bought peace, it's been in the longer run, it's damaged the coherence of the national army very badly and is something that should be avoided in the future. So the M23 have some stated or less well-stated aims I think that it's also just worth saying that the M23 at the moment are quite comfortable with the status quo. And I think this is another problem and makes uh, the prospects of talks rather remote. They control large areas of North Kivu. They're making a lot of money and they continue to put pressure on the government in Kinshasa. But I think they're also you know, quite happy with the situation as it is. Right. And it's also quite hard to see how they get more than what they currently have through talks. As you say, they control one of the world's biggest coal town mines, I'm sure. 
listeners know how important Coltan is now to mobile phones, other technology. They're making money. It seems unlikely that any government in Kinshasa is going to be in a position to grant them more or even anything comparable to what they have now in terms of sort of their control of those resources. So as you say, it's not just that they're comfortable with the status quo, but it's not quite clear that they would get more through negotiations than they have now in any case. And in that sense, maybe it's understandable that Kinshasa wants to see the military balance change, sort of force them into settling for less, though. Again, it's not quite clear the SADC force is going to be able to do that. Absolutely. And I think it's also important to point out that the M23 is an insurgent organisation. There are various political organisations which have joined the Congolese parliament and there's various uh, Tutsi politicians who may represent uh, Tutsis in the Congo. But the M23 is a fighting organisation. And if it's not fighting, it has historically been sitting in refugee camps in Uganda and Rwanda. It has little prospect of a political future. And again, that I think is a significant obstacle to uh, meaningful talks with it. Because as you say, it uh, it really has military objectives, being a military organisation, and it won't get better uh, a better deal through talking. Uh, so that is a major problem and a major obstacle, yes. And Rwanda, so a decade ago, there was the SADC force we talked about that fought the M23. But as you say, back then, there was also a lot of pressure on Rwanda, which maybe even was decisive. And although Rwanda doesn't dictate everything the M23 does, it's also true that were Rwanda to withdraw support, it would be hard to see the M23 sustaining its military campaign to the extent that it's able to do so now. So what might attract I guess, along the lines of what the Angolans have been trying, what might attract with Rwanda pressure diplomacy aimed at ending its support for the M23? What might that look like? Yes, right. So I think that the important element of this has to be a conversation which would necessarily be in private because the Rwandans are not going to talk about this publicly, but a conversation around what are the security red lines of Rwanda in Eastern DRC. Now, the Rwandans, as I said, talk about the FDLR, but the Rwandans have taken different approaches to dealing with the FDLR in the past. Indeed, in the not so distant uh, past, the Rwandan army has gone into North Kivu to push back the FDLR and indeed assassinate some of its leadership and so forth with the consent of Kinshasa. So arming the M23 is not the only route that Rwanda has used in the past to securing its interests in the region. And I think that has to be the basis of the conversations and the diplomatic conversations that are going on. Uh, It needs to be, so what are the Rwandan red lines and how can Rwanda's legitimate security concerns be taken into account while allowing for the M23 to enter into talks with a view to disbanding and discussing and negotiating what their future would be. Though addressing legitimate security concerns, yes, as you say, needs to be part of it. But in the end, Rwanda is still meddling, fueling instability, backing a big rebel group in its neighbour, and presumably a stronger line from President Kagame's Western and other partners, which was part of what happened back in 2013, needs to again be central to any effort. Yeah, that's right. I mean, these things have fluctuated over time. But nevertheless, the government in Kigali and President Paul Kagame has been very clever at making himself useful. And in many ways that, uh, you know, been saluted by international actors um, and even by ourselves. We've written on uh, the Rwandan role in Central African Republic and been given a broadly positive uh, assessment of it, Rwanda deploys efficient peacekeepers, and that's uh, something of a rarity in the world. Rwanda enjoys a wide set of good relations with uh, many countries, not just Western countries, but right across the Middle East uh, and even Asia. Rwanda also has allies in Africa, sometimes rather grudging allies, but nevertheless uh, does have allies. One thinks of Mozambique, where they've deployed a force to protect oil installations in the north of the country. So Rwanda has a very clever and efficient diplomacy 
it has allies, and the evidence shows that it's simply up to now prepared to bear the cost for its support for the M23, and its calculation is that it's made itself too useful for that cost to hurt it too much. So greater pressure on Rwanda has got to be part of the picture. I think also Kinshasa has to think a bit more carefully about how it frames this conflict. It's understandable that Kinshasa is angry at Rwanda for backing the M23, but I think this um, single-minded focus on the Rwandan leadership, uh, a very hostile position it's taking, is not diplomatically helpful. Politicians in Kinshasa have come pretty close to saying that they're prepared to invade Rwanda. Well, obviously, that's very unhelpful and simply allows Kigali to then claim that it's acting in self-defence. So there's an escalation on both sides that I think needs to be calmed down. And certainly pressure on Rwanda has to be a significant part of that. Richard, thanks so much for coming on again. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on the Democratic Republic of Congo and on the Great Lakes politics more broadly on our website, crisisgroup.org. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub. And thanks as ever to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch. Podcasts at crisisgroup.org or outward at crisisgroup.org if you have any questions, suggestions or concerns. Please do leave us a positive rating or review if you like the show. Next week, we plan another episode on the horror that is still unfolding in Gaza. We're also going to try and do an episode at some point over the next couple of weeks to reflect on some recent security conferences. Last week, I joined Comfortero, Crisis Group's president, and some other colleagues in Munich. Comfort is now at the Ricina Dialogue in India. I'm going to the Antalya conference in Turkey next week, so we'll do an episode reflecting on some of the conversations at those. Plus, we have episodes coming up on the changing geography of organised crime in Latin America, on Asia-Pacific politics, amongst other things. So I very much hope that you'll join us again next time.